Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Elizabeth Carney, Chair of the Business and Leadership Forum, and your host for today's program, which is An Evening with Rebecca Solnit, an energizing case for hope about the climate. Also with us here on Zoom, her co-author, Thelma Young, Lutunatubua, how'd I do? And her partner, Fenton, and a small one that is really the whole reason why we worry about climate. So thank you. Uh, They'll join us for the first part of this program uh, from Fiji. Uh, And then um, they will not have to stay around for the whole thing. Rebecca and I will have a conversation. We'll have some question and answer time together. Um, We want to give everyone a chance to speak. So later in the program, please use the microphone if you're coming up for a question, or if you're on YouTube, use the chat box feature. Your participation in the program is really important to us. So we'll try to get to everyone that we can. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Susan Hamer from Bioneers. She'll give some background about Rebecca and the Bioneers Conference. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Thank you all for coming out. I'm very excited uh, about this event. Uh, uh, Elizabeth and I cooked this up a few months ago, maybe six months ago, uh, to kind of as a pre-event to Bioneers. I don't know if you know that uh, Rebecca Solnit's going to be the keynote speaker at the Bioneers Conference, which is happening in Berkeley for the first time, as we said, April 6th to 8th. Lots of speakers, in fact, a couple speakers, uh, people who wrote in this book, I know Jade Begley is one of them, is also speaking. It's a, it's a wonderful conference, a bunch of visionary speakers speaking about climate change, progressive politics, uh, the environment, everything uh, that we care about is it's going to be there. It's going to be three days, and the mayor, they're taking over Berkeley, so it's going to be great. I hope you all will join us. And by the way, we have a special discount code Uh, from the Commonwealth Club, Commonwealth 20. You can get a discount code. You can go all three days or just one day. I think Rebecca's going to be there on the Saturday. Um, I first came across Rebecca Solnit on Facebook, of all places, and uh, people were posting about her, and I started reading her columns in The Guardian, and I was so impressed. I kind of went, wow, this woman is everything that I care about. Um, I recommended her, I read and recommended her book, Orwell's Roses, for my book club. I think uh, one of the people in my book club is here. We, we so enjoyed it. We so enjoy her work. And we're so thrilled that she's going to be speaking tonight and answering our questions about hope for the climate. And it's not too late, which I'm really glad to hear. And I hope we're all glad to hear of some good news about the climate. So um, I'm going to ask Rebecca if she would like to, uh, or no, Elizabeth, would you like to I- introduce uh, Fenton and Thelma? I was hoping that Rebecca would come up and join me. And then maybe, yeah, me and then maybe you would like to say something about Fenton and Thelma before to kick it off. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to see them. And Thelma is a dear friend and an inspiration. 
at uh, grew up in Texas, but now lives with her husband in Fiji. He's indigenous to Fiji. And um, Thelma's been in the climate uh, climate activist for a long time. She was with 350. She's with the Solutions Project now. And we dreamed up Not Too Late as a project a couple of years ago, launched it as a website and social media about a year ago. And then at a dinner party, I told people I was not going to do more books. I had stopped doing books because I was trying to be a better climate activist. And we had this project called Not Too Late. And um, and everybody at the part at this little kind of climate and writer dinner party looked at me and said that needs to be a book. So I like emailed Thelma, who's <laughs> conveniently in Fiji, five nineteen hours ahead or five hours behind, depending on how you look at the clock. And she got on board, and we did a book in less than a year. So her husband um, is well, co-founder of the Pacific Climate Warriors, and is also the I think the Pacific. Uh, Island Regional Director of 350.org, and he is one of the authors in the book, or rather, um, he's an interviewee. Thelma co-edited this book and wrote several of the pieces, and he is the author of the famous phrase for the Pacific Island climate warriors, we're not drowning, we're fighting. So welcome, Mm. Thelma and Fenton, and the baby. I don't think I need to introduce the baby, but I will say, and Thelma writes about this in the very last uh, piece in the book, that having a baby is a pretty big, hopeful thing to do for two climate activists. So here's their commitment. Yay. So Fenton and Thelma, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's kind of like I think that if I look that way, you'll be able to see me. Uh, so it's if I'm looking in a funny way, you'll understand why. The thing that I'm really excited about is that my understanding is that the Pacific Climate Warriors have kind of done what it is that I think we're here to talk about tonight. I think that what we want to learn to do is change the narrative, change the story, so that we don't have that same dark and dismal story inside of us, but we start to Hmm, I don't know, be a little bit more regenerative ourselves. So in that light, I hope that we will be able to talk with you guys about your process, your narrative that you've changed. But before we get to that, I um, I was really interested, Thelma, in one of the things that you've written. And both Rebecca and Thelma's writing is throughout this book. It's so fun because it's almost like they're having a conversation with 20 of these people in this book. And one of the things that, Thelma, you write is you mentioned something that intrigues me. You say, instead of sacrificing, we have to drive less, eat less, etc. The question comes up instead, what is our connection to, what is our relationship to connection? You, you write, are you getting to know your neighbors? If a flood comes through tomorrow, would you be ready to assist each other? Shifting our task list toward mutuality and also learning to know the patterns and the plants. So that kinship would not have immediately been on my list. So thank you. You're already really changing my consciousness about this. So 
Um, you want to start, you guys, by talking about the community aspect a little bit? Sure, I'll kick it off. Um, and thanks again for having us. Benjamin and I met through doing climate storytelling work. Um, so it makes sense that we're doing this event together and with our, our son, who's also been a part of the book from the very beginning. Um, yeah, it's for so long, the climate crisis has also been a storytelling crisis. And it's been dominated so much by by the Western media who talks about individualism so much. You know, and it also, again, like, like I was saying, it talks about those restrictions. Um, if we want to solve a climate crisis, you have to reduce your lifestyle. You have to create a mindset of scarcity. You have to focus on the individual self. But if we shift that and we think about, you know, maybe through solving the climate crisis, we can actually build a better world. If we think about it in that way, and if we center communities and how we solve the problem, um, then it'll be a lot more fun along the ways. We'll have more joy. We'll build, again, more brighter, resilient, happier, more beautiful places. And I think this is how, again, how we want to shift the narrative. It's about how can we all come together, find our power, and instead of thinking of the climate crisis as scarcity, think of it think of it as abundance. And Rebecca and I talk about this in the book, that we need to shift the story to abundance, that actually we can create a better world through this process of, you know, standing against what is destructive, taking that down, and then rebuilding something beautiful in its place. Yeah, maybe we even got a glimmer of that with the COVID shutdown, like the idea that we could see and feel more nature than we normally did, that was pretty astounding to many of us. So maybe that you're pointing to something that we've already sensed a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me take a minute. Do you want to chime in? Yeah, I think the, the only thing I'd love to add is, is like this idea of connectedness, right? both to each other as well as to the natural world and, and how we really focus and be intentional and deliberate about how we build that connectedness. So much of that connectedness has helped us in the, in, in, you know, in the wake of a, like a massive tropical cyclone. It's that feeling of connectedness to a neighbor that helps the, the rebuild happen. And like Thomas said, so much of the work right now has been about the breaking, right? How do we sort of uh, break away from past habits that haven't served us? How do we break away from like, you, you know, the, the capitalistic idea that the fossil fuel industry sort of pushes all over us and how do we build? And so much of the way forward is how do we build that connectedness? How do we build relationality? How, how do we build the sort of futures we all deserve? And so much of the work that we've done as a Pacific Climate Warriors has really been in service to a story that is more nuanced, that is more complex, that really sees the human value. For a very long time, the single story that was told about my people, Pacific Islanders, in the face of this climate crisis, was that we're mere victims waiting to be saved. So it really took away our, our agency, right? Mm -hmm. So as a collective of connected Pacific Islanders around the region, uh, we started saying, actually, there's a fuller more uh, there's a fuller truth that we have the opportunity to tell this this larger story about who we are as as like you know 
as the heroes in our own story, uh, connected to skills, traditional knowledge, uh, indigenous wisdom, and how do we use that to, to really build out this future that we're all striving towards? And that's that's where the 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 sort of slogan of the Pacific Warriors, uh, Pacific Climate Warriors, came from. We're not drowning; we're fighting. Uh, it really was to tell a fuller story about who we are. And Fenton, as you've told that story. Do you find that people resonate with it? And do you help us to bring that also into our own lives so that we can be heroes in that new narrative somehow? Can you give us any coaching about that? Yeah, it's, I've definitely felt that it has become more resonant recently. Resonant recently, uh, I think more and more people uh, are like, they're, you know, it's they're, they're they're looking at how do we build together moving forward. And a lot of that can look like many different things uh, for us in the Pacific on, on the front lines of, of the climate crisis. You know, it's it's constantly just like reminding people that we're here, uh, that we're not going anywhere, uh, that we deserve to thrive. Uh, and I know, Thomas, do you want to talk about a little bit about what that means for you? Yeah, for me, being pregnant was an exercise in hope. And bringing a child into this world is a, one of the most physical realities of I am not giving up. I am shifting the narrative of my own life and my family's life to one of despair and gloom into one of hope. Um, and even, even if the future isn't perfect, we're not giving up. And I think that's where I'm holding in my heart is that the future is uncertain and that's okay because it gives us space to build the world that we want. And so when I look at the future for my son, I have no idea what that future is going to look like, but I know that it's going to be what we make it to be. And so we're not giving up. There's, there's clapping going on in the room. And I want to share with you our own experience we're sitting here in San Francisco, and this building is on the edge of the bay here on Embarcadero. And yesterday we had 70 mile an hour winds, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it floods this street when that happens. So the experience of things changing and now is not something that's just far away. It's also right here for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's, we've hit the point with climate change where it's no longer about polar bears. It is impacting yeah. every single life around the world. And it's one of those things where it's, everyone's impacted by climate change, but every story is completely different, which is also why we need so many new climate storytellers out there who can tell the stories that, in a way that resonates with their communities. Um, we need to drastically diversify our climate spokespeople world. Um, instead of just being kind of the usual same voices, we need everyone talking to their neighbors in, in ways that they will relate to. Um, and if we build up those climate storytellers, then more and more people can join in the fight. You agree, don't you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have... Uh, um, uh, intention tonight of having all of us feel like neighbors and all of us feel like 
a local group that can start to build up our relations with each other. So um, thank you for encouraging us because, you know, we always think we're rugged individuals and maybe it's time for us to get better at being connected. The only way we're going to make it through the climate crisis is if we act together and if we act as a community, there's no way to survive as individuals. So definitely get to know the people around you and that stronger bond will resonate down the road. Are there resources that you want to share with us that might be helpful for us for doing more of that? Are there organizations or projects that you all are working on that you want to point us in that direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely adore the work of the Pacific Climate Warriors. Um, they're, they're, you know, on, on Facebook, they're just 350 Pacific. On Instagram, uh, their handle is at Pacific Climate Warriors. And I encourage you to just, uh, you know, visit, visit their Instagram handle. Uh, they share a lot of stories about what resilience looks like on the, on, on, on the sort of in the villages, in the different villages around uh, the Pacific. They also are currently working on a project where they're trying to connect village to village and build resilient villages across the Pacific. And I think it's inspiring. I think it's innovative. I think they're just incredible. But I also have a very biased uh, opinion on that. Um, you can also check out our website, org. Um, Rebecca and I have a bunch of really great resources on there. Um, yeah, hope you can check it out. Thelma, what's your intention with that uh, with that website? We just want it to be kind of an ongoing, um, kind of a touch point. You know, if you ever hit that despair, uh, gloomy kind of day, you can just go to the website, find one of the articles, read it, um, and, and kind of be re-energized. Same thing with the book. Rebecca and I thought of it as kind of the thing that you kind of keep in your backpack in your bag and you can pull out and read an essay anytime that your that your spirit needs it. Mm. Thank you. Is there anything else that you guys want to say to us while you're while we're all here together? Yeah, I, I just want to say I, I think it's such a beautiful and incredible time to center creativity and art. I think in the world that we're all building together, there has to be space for for art, there has to be space for poetry, for music. And so much of the folks that Delma and Rebecca spoke to in the book also come from that, you know, they have that background in creativity and the commitment to to uh, using creative energy to tell, to tell really beautiful stories. And so, yeah, I just encourage you to think about um, how you want to bring art to life, uh, to life in, in the different ways that you move through this world. Yeah. Um, I think Rebecca is going to say a lot of amazing things, um, but just never forget the beautiful things in the world. You know, there's a lot of to be to despair about, but there's a lot to be joyous about. So never forget that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, you guys. And congratulations on the book, Thelma. Wonderful Thank to you. see you both. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> wow, I'm going to see if we can have that baby at all our all our sort of hybrid events. And so. Oh, so precious. And uh, the baby is mentioned in the book. So 
uh, might be like before the baby even arrives. Well, we we finished the book before the baby was born, but the editorial process allowed some updates, and um, mm. so he's in it. That's so great. And I just think it's such a miracle to be able to have these conversations with each other that are international conversations where we can inspire each other as needed uh, and also have it be super local, like here we all are in this room and what can we do with that energy as well. So uh, congratulations on the book. I just, Thank you. I'm... Uh, I just think it's such a joyous and imaginative collection of essays. We were so excited. We asked, we essentially assembled a, a dream team. We asked the people we most wanted to be in this book, and everybody said yes. We have two inter, intergovernmental panel on climate change, top scientists. We've got other geographers and other scientists. We have leaders in the climate movement. We have people from frontline communities. We have visionaries like Adrienne Marie Brown. Our youngest contributor, I think, was 26 when she wrote for us. Our oldest was 80, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, the Buddhist leader. And, uh, you know, it's an international uh, community of uh, voices. It was wonderful to put together, wonderful to put out into the world. So, and this is actually the first event for it. So thank you. Yay. I am, I'm struck by yesterday's climate action being in the midst of a 70 mile an hour wind and a storm. And, uh, what a reminder, um, that nature is a priority and that um, pushing the whole pipelines and destroying old-growth forests is really not the way to go. Although yesterday's protest was really across the nation with more than 100 demonstrations about the banks that are financing fossil fuel extraction, the big four are Chase, Wells Fargo, City, and um, uh, and B of A, and... Uh, you know, they are playing a huge role in the destruction of the planet and the climate. And it was an action for people to withdraw their money, cut up their credit cards. I cut up my longtime United Miles card and, uh, you know, tell the banks to stop doing that and to stop financing climate destruction. And so in San Francisco, despite the incredible rain and wind and cold, well, we th thought it was cold. People in other parts <laughs> of the country won't get... Um, you know, we had more than 100 people for a couple of hours. We shut down the street, and uh, some remarkable things happened, remarkable speakers. And uh, mm. so, yeah, but it happened from Maine to um, people did a rocking chair vigil um, in Washington, D.C. for 24 hours mm. because it was led by Third Act, Bill McKibben's new group, led mm. by people, by senior citizens and people over 60. He felt the climate movement was burdening the young with like, oh, you young people are so amazing. Why don't you do all the work is how it ended up sounding. So it's time for older people as a powerful constituency because we have a lot of resources and, uh, you know, to take some leadership. So Bill, who's 62, I think, mm -hmm. uh, put not too late together right around when he turned 60 and it's doing amazing, not, not, not too late, third act, mm -hmm. third act, and it's doing amazing things. So keeping track, we've already heard of three or four or five different organizations that could be 
part of like as you're sitting here and you're thinking, like think about what are the things that are are lighting up for you? Like what are the things that you might want to do in the midst of that? And that's kind of the kind of conversation that we can be having. It's not just uh, a, a pleasant talk, which of course it is, but it's it's also more. Um, and uh, I'm aware of different phases of narratives that we've lived through, things like climate denying, which was like a whole narrative for 10, 20 years. It's been something. And now it's like, oh, it's too complicated. We can't possibly do anything. Um, even the media, the internet, the the mainstream media is pretty powerful at keeping us uh, confused and um, uh, in despair. And I'm wondering, like, how you, I don't want to say consume the news, but you're, you're a writer in that world. And like, you write in, in essays in beautiful places that I think help to, to change the conversation. Help us know a little bit about how to use media to, like, we have to stay informed, but yet on the other hand, we don't really want to be burdened by it. You know what I mean? I think for everybody, uh, particularly in the age of social media and the addictiveness of the internet, um, figuring out your information diet, what actually makes you mm -hmm. feel empowered purposeful, makes the world more coherent, is really important uh, around all the issues. And there is a tendency of the mainstream media and politicians to tell us a story that we're just consumers, or maybe we can also go vote. They're not going to necessarily encourage us to become activists, to, to organize, etc. So they fail us on that story. But there are other places you can go for that story. You can get information from climate groups that are doing that organizing, like Third Act, 350.org, the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Dianu, the um, group for um, Jew Jewish climate people. Hmm. So, and then also, I actually follow a bunch of real smart people I respect on Twitter, journalists, climate hmm. scientists, climate communicators, etc. And you know, of course, I'm a journalist myself, so the raw data is something I'm happy to crunch. I write for The Guardian, which I think has done the best job on climate for the last 20 years by far. And I uh, just did a piece for The Washington Post, which has been often pretty good. But I totally agree with you that the mainstream narrative is often discourages action partly by suggesting that it is too late, we don't know what to do, it's too hard to do, it's all about sacrifice. For example, when the when Lawrence Burke Lawrence Livermore Labs kind of spun their story about their fusion experiment to make it sound like an energy solution rather than something that was actually about nuclear weapons um, stockpile security, they got a ton of newspaper and other media stories suggesting like, oh my God, this could be the energy solution we need. And it made those of us deep in the climate movement just berserk because we already have the solutions. And that's something a lot of people don't understand. We have the solutions. We can supply all the energy we need with wind and sun. We have had an 
absolute revolution, an energy revolution that might be the greatest technological revolution since maybe fire and wheels and, uh, you know, a revolution against fire. We're going to get energy from, um, not from burning things for the first time. And, you know, often the story, sometimes the stories are just wrong. Sometimes they have an attitude that's defeatist. Sometimes they're just uh, behind the curve and we yeah. have the solutions. And then Thelma was touching on something that's been really important to the Not Too Late Project and to us personally, which is we're also constantly encouraged, particularly by the Republicans, but I think that the Democrats and the mainstream play into it, that what's required of us is renunciation and sacrifice and austerity. And I did an editorial in the Washington Post this weekend trying to stand that on its head. We're constantly told that we now live in an age of abundance, but do we really, and do we have an abundance of hope? Do we have an abundance of justice and economic justice? Mm-hmm. Do we have an, an abundance of community and social connection? Uh, do we have an, you know, do we have an abundance of hope and confidence about the future? I think we're living in, an, you know, do we have clean air, clean water, uh, et cetera? Do we have clean politics? We, all those things, you know, th- I would say the answer is no. And what we need to do for the climate crisis, first of all, is exit the age of fossil fuel. But in decentralizing energy, um, we can sort of leave the age in which fossil fuel politics, which have been so grotesquely corrupt, as we, you know, observe the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by the U.S. government, um, But also a lot of, you know, we don't just have to change the energy system. We have to change the culture. I think we have to change what we value, how we measure wealth, uh, to think, like, you know, do we have good friendships? Do we have time? Do we have meaningful work? Do we live in a community where everybody has enough? Do we have clean air and clean water? You mentioned the pandemic earlier, and one of the shocking things about the pandemic was all the air pollution around the world that stopped. Recently, they had air pollution so bad from burning fossil fuel in Thailand. I think 200,000 people were hospitalized. More than 8 million people a year die from respiratory problems due to burning fossil fuels. But when the pandemic happened, suddenly in northern India, there were a lot of communities that could see the Himalayas for the first time in decades. And there's subtle things like, Subtle losses, like not being able to see the mountains that have been there for millions of years, suddenly have become invisible because we burn fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Things like that, like you know. And there's bigger things, but I think changing our criteria, our sense of what wealth is, what matters, who we are, what we need, even who we means, maybe a we that includes people who are historically excluded in the global South and the mm-hmm. South Pacific. Um, maybe a we that includes all living beings. And mm-hmm. so changing the story is also, as well as the energy system, is part of the work and part of what Thelma and I wanted to put a book together about. And an accessible book, a book that, unlike most of the books I see on climate, would be really inviting to newcomers, whether because you've been overwhelmed by, you know, all the stuff out there or because you're 17 and, you know, probably haven't been reading the news for a really long time. Well, and the thing that I see is that so much of it actually has to do with changing inside of us. Like, I can remember when the EPA was started. And the EPA being started was a bipartisan bipartisan, um, uh, action. And it was because of things like the river in Cleveland set on fire. 
Well, that wasn't acceptable to anybody who was living then. And so we think it's always been polarized, but it hasn't. Uh, Another uh, illustration that you've caused me to think about was um, uh, an author that I think you're uh, fond of, um, The Dawn of Everything. Uh, Oh, David Graeber and David Wengrow, yes. And the thing that was so amazing about that was that using science, they seem to have upended the narrative of the myth of the stupid savage. And that, like that, that lives as though it were something in our collective experience. And he completely negated it. What a powerful example of how changing the story makes a really big difference. I think we're living in an era where a huge number of stories are changing. I'm I'm old enough. I was born into a world where women were separate and unequal, as were people of color, and that was um, by both law and culture completely normalized. Um, People kept, you know, women kept out of the Ivy Leagues. Black people kept out of most places, almost everything run by white men. I was born into an era where we almost didn't have a language for the environment. People didn't think about it. I'm a year older than Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Uh, People thought the Cold War would last forever. And I'm the same age as the Berlin Wall, not to sort of anchor it all on me. But, uh, (laughs) you know, even in the summer of 1989, people didn't think that the East Bloc countries and, you know, the Berlin Wall and then the Soviet Union a couple years later would collapse and that binary organization of the world would cease to be what it had been. And of course, speaking of binary, the way we think about gender and sexuality has changed radically in our time. The way we think about food and nature has changed. All the stories are changing. We're also living through a huge pushback um, from right-wing, you know, white supremacist, neo-fascist and authoritarians who don't like the radical equality that is part of the, you know, the new stories, the new values, the new we of this era. So we're in a story battle. What stories are mm-hmm. we going to tell about what matters, who we are, who should decide, etc.? And, you know, it, the conflict is pretty intense right now. But I think in many ways, we've already won. And what we're seeing mostly is backlash. I don't know. They can take away reproductive rights, for example, but I don't know if they can take away the belief that we deserve the reproductive rights we mm. we didn't have before 50 years ago when abortion became legalized nationally. Mm. So we're in an era of change, I think, so profound and so multifaceted that it's really hard to see. It's happened slowly. It's happened in almost every arena. It's created a world, as Thelma and I like to say, that would be unrecognizable to people from 50 Mm. years ago. Part of what gives me hope for the future is, you know, if we had a time machine and a bunch of people from 1973 showed up and we told them what the world looked like now, how different technology was, how different energy was. You know, the UK got almost all its electricity from coal then. It Mm. gets almost none of it now and is like heading towards renewable, um, you know, majority energy sources. Uh, 2023 is unbelievable from 1973, which is why I think 2073 is unimaginable to us, Mm. but the unimaginable is not impossible. 
and what we do now builds it. We can see what people did in 1973 and after for gay rights, for women's rights, for reproductive rights, for, as you mentioned, with the EPA, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, etc., for environmental stuff, as well as young people kind of inventing organic farming and reaction against the pesticide era Rachel Carson talked about. So we see a world unimaginably changed in 50 years. It will be unimaginably changed again in 50 years, depending on what we do now, And which is why, as climate activists, we're so committed to fighting for the best-case scenario and trying to push back the worst-case scenario. We uh, at least my agenda for this evening is is definitely includes investigating these stories and how we can change these narratives and what those might be. And I, I think uh, Thelma's and Fenton's point about having the artists help us uh, with our imagination creating new pictures. Are there pictures in the book that... Are there stories? Is there something that you'd especially like to, to share with us as far as that narrative success? I know there are literally pictures. We have five graphics by my brother, uh, David Solnit, who Bill McKibben today called the climate movement's art artivist, which a uh, sort of mashup <laughs> of artist and activist. But there's also like very rich stories by a number of people in the book. So uh, Nikayla Jefferson, who's a young black climate organizer who was with uh, the Sunrise Movement, talks about organizing a climate uh, um, hunger strike and how deeply distressing it was to watch these people who are close to starve themselves into, you know, incredible danger to their lives um, to try and face down um, the foot dragging on what was Build Back Better and the Green New Deal, which mm -hmm. became the IRA that eventually passed. Uh, Yotam Maram tells a beautiful story about what do we do when the world is ending? What do we do when we feel like the world we're in is going to end? Mm -hmm. And he looks at Jews and the Holocaust, Native American people facing genocide, mm -hmm. to see people who've been valiant and committed in the face of not the the earth ending, you know, in some kind of planetary apocalypse, but their world's ending in deep ways to find inspiration for going forward, mm -hmm. doing what you can no matter what. Uh, um you know, we have a lot of stories like that. Jacqueline Gill, who's a paleoecologist and climate scientist in Maine, tells an extraordinary story about going into an ice tunnel in Siberia where she can see the world that ended 20,000 years ago, oh. all the frozen stuff that was alive then that isn't now. I think mammoths and things like that to think about deep time and what kind of hope we can find from it. Adrian Marie Brown talks about pleasure and joy as part of activism. So there's, you know, there's so many stories in the book. Well, and the thing that I think is that, you know, we're human. We're, we live as natural creatures in a natural world. And you remind us that our, with our imagination, we can dream up different scenarios. I think that we are we have so much and the way people thought about nature even 30 or 40 years ago was nature was like half the picture culture was the other half and they're kind of co-equal 
nature people in New York used to say like, oh, nature's in the past tense for us. And I used to want to yell at those New Yorkers in the 80s. You hold a cup of coffee. The coffee came from a tropical forest. The water came from, you know, the reservoirs north of New York City. The paper came from a tree. The milk came from a cow. You're holding four landscapes, you know, in your in your go cup of coffee. And people don't think like that anymore. And that's something in my own work I try and map a lot. A lot of stories have changed slowly and incrementally so that, that people don't often recognize how differently we think. But we do think so differently about these things. We didn't think about where food came from. We didn't, you know, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers made us think about, well, who picks that food uh, in the 1960s? But that kind of thinking about what is the food's impact on the environment, how many miles did it travel, you know, all those questions. We're in a radically different world. And so we're we're in the middle of changing all the stories. We need new stories, as Thelma and Fenton observed, but we also have a lot of stories that are pretty new com- uh, compared to where mm. we used to be. Something that happens to me regularly, it happened when I took a look for some reason at Lord of the Rings yesterday, is looking at something I used to think was really fun or, you know, I really liked a great movie. It happened to me during the pandemic with Purple Rain. And I find that my values have changed. Things that were not even mm. noticeable to me then with Lord of the Rings was like, wow, even the dwarves and elves are white people. And uh, with uh, Purple Rain, it was how cruel Prince is to the woman he's supposedly infatuated with mm. and how that's played for laughs and how when that movie came out 30 years ago, probably everyone, including 21-year-old me, laughed. And I look at it now and it's like... It made the movie unwatchable to me. And I actually kind of love going back to these things because I'm like, wow, our values have changed. We've surfaced things that used to be invisible, rendered things intolerable, that used to be tolerable. And uh, so we're in, the, we're in the process of colossal change, which I think is terrifying, which is why some people are hiding out from it with Make America Great Again. I always called Make America 1958 again. <laughs> right. trying, trying to roll the, you know, roll time backwards, which doesn't work. Or Though in your book, you do some really fun things about being in the future and looking to here. Or yeah. being here and looking back. And so you play with time in some oh, really interesting oh, ways. Oh, we do. In the but we definitely don't try and make it 1958 again. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Although 1958 for like progressive taxation was really awesome. And the Republican <laughs> Party was a relatively reasonable party. But it was a terrible time to be anything but a very small percentage of the population. If you weren't right. white, if you weren't straight, if you weren't male, it was a really tough world. But the the thing that I notice in the way that you're speaking is that not only do you have the bigger, uh, a broad timeline, but you also have self-observation. It's like you notice how you feel about that movie, or you notice how you feel about the reaction to something that's different than it was. And I think that that helps us if we have the awareness of ourselves to be able to map that, it's, uh, it's quite helpful. So yes, we fall, fall down into the um, mainstream media information for a while, but then we notice that we have and we pull ourselves back out again or be witness to our own lives. 
I'm not sure how much people do. And part of why we started Not Too Late as a project and then did it as a book is because there's a lot of climate despair, grief, anxiety, etc. And it comes from two things. One, I think, is bad factual information. People who think it is too late, we don't have the solutions, nobody cares, nobody's doing anything. Um, factual misinformation like that. And you do run into people who announce, although those are the kind of weird people who seem to kind of be very excited to push uh, despair onto everyone else that, you know, we're all going to, you know, that civilization's going to die or humanity's going to die or life on earth is going to die, which is not, it's going to change a lot, but that's not going to happen. But what I also find is that people have not only facts, but frameworks. Their stories about how change works and how power works don't let them recognize what I think the reality of that change is, what where power lies, the power of changing the story, as you've brought up multiple times, the the power of ordinary people to organize and, and create movements that can, be, you know, change regimes, change change what corporations can do, change the world and have over and over again. I write about the past a lot because the future is unwritten. We don't know what will happen, but we know in we know looking and learning from the past how to make it happen that's one of my favorite things about this book is you write about the future is yet unwritten that the i got I, that from terminator <laughs> <laughs> there's terminator 3 the future is not is unwritten terminator 2 no fate but what we make and they're kind of fun you know the terminators in time travel let them Look at the fact that what we do in the present makes the future, and we can change that. Of course, we don't normally get time travelers to tell us, like, oh, this thing's going to be really horrible in 30 years. I think we're now living in the time of the Terminator, uh, that the future of the Terminator movies, which are, like, you know, 30-plus years. What? We will not go into the chronology of Terminator, <laughs> although I could. But then you'd all watch me scratch my head for a while. But I do want to go into yeah. the chronology of this evening. Yeah. And I want to make sure that everyone knows that we want uh, all of you to pipe up and come to the um, the microphone and ask ask questions of Rebecca and make inquiries um, both here in this room and also there might be some uh, chat questions that are coming in. So um, please know that you're welcome to. Um, to make your voice heard at this point, there's a microphone here. You can line up there if you would like, and we'll and we'll continue to to talk. But um, we want to we want to make your um, voices heard too. And the uh, the comment that I wanted to make about the future is not yet written is I know you're involved with the IPCC, and they have um, projections. Uh, but you remind us they're projections, not predictions. Exactly. And I wanted to just speak a little more to the future is not yet written. One of the things that induces climate despair is the idea that the future has already been decided and there's no wiggle room. And you see a certain kind of fatalism, uh, talk of inevitability. What's interesting for me is that that's often on the outskirts. If you talk to people who are deep in the climate movement as activists, as organizers, or as scientists, that's not at all what they say. Thelma and I were delighted to see uh, the UN's top climate official say in response to the IPCC report released yesterday 
or Monday that um, Simon Simon uh, Steele said it's not too late. The IPCC clearly demonstrates that it is possible to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade with rapid and deep emissions reductions across all sector, all sectors of the global economy, and that would be a that would mean radical change in this decade. And uh, and people think it's impossible. It's why the first essay in the book is called "Difficult is not the, not the same as impossible." It is not impossible. It would be incredibly difficult, but entirely for political reasons. We know what to do. We know how to do it. We have all the technology. The obstacles have been for a very long time political. We have to overcome the power of the fossil fuel interests, the inertia of the status quo and the politicians serving the fossil fuel industry and the status quo, and the failure of the imagination of people who think we can't do it, it's too hard, etc. We need to build movements stronger than the status quo and the fossil fuel industry. And I've been around the climate movement since there was pretty much a climate movement and I remember demonstrating around the corner for Rainforest Action Network in 1988, talking about, you know, oxygen and the Amazon. So maybe longer. And the movement has grown incredibly. It's global. It's powerful. It's influential. The future looks much brighter because of what activists have done, including the way that the Green New Deal, which, see, what you know, was ridiculed when it started out, shaped Biden's climate platform, which led to Build Back Better, which, you know, kind of got whittled down into the um, Inflation Reduction Act, but did pass. You know, we have not done nearly enough to bend the curve, but we have bent it from where it would be had we done nothing, had there been no Paris Climate Treaty, had there been no organizing, etc. So we are making the future as IPCC, which I will just throw out again, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The world's top scientists in the field come together to talk about where we are, where we need to be, how to get there. So, um, you know, they tell us, because I don't think people think in these big frameworks enough, we are shaping what the earth will look like for the thousands of years to come. We in this decade, it's an incredible responsibility it requires all of us to be heroic. I think we deeply believe, you know, we the not-too-late people, that we all have that capacity for heroism, that most of us have a role to play in the movement. And, um, you know, finding that role, whether it's joining something, donating, organizing, educating, um, keeping hope alive, um, is the work we're all here to do. And it matters more than anything. Mm. First question. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the role of fear in changing the story. I'm noticing that Hollywood story about the future. Um, and according to climate change is, you know, don't look up that film that just came out where it was, things were the asteroid about to hit. Um, there's this new show on Apple TV, Extrapolations, takes place in 2037, and the world, look, things look really grim. And I was thinking back to when, um, uh, when that, the day after tomorrow came out, and that story about nuclear, a, a possible nuclear war, or it was a nuclear war, um, came out. It seemed to shift 
the consciousness in some way, uh, people got, oh, God, this could really happen. Um, so I'm just curious about how you think about fear in relationship to all the wonderful things you're saying about how we need to have hope. I, I think because we're on C-SPAN, I can't use a lot of curse words. <laughs> but uh, Hollywood is really good at two things, which, are really, which is really bad for life on Earth. One of them is um, crash bang um, violence, and that's the version of the future they find most imaginable. I think that's a broader problem. We don't have a lot of climate utopia stories, although we have some, including Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. At, um, another thing is they like lone heroes. You know, they very rarely can tell a story where the world gets changed not by somebody who is an action hero, which usually means whether it's the Terminator or Tom Cruise or whatever, they're really good at violence and, uh, you know, which is also not how the world gets changed. I don't care how many muscles you have. Um, that's not going to make you a good organizer. And being a good organizer is what's going to actually like make you a person who can change the world or a good storyteller or a good fundraiser or maybe a good, you know, engineer working on climate solutions. So they have created a kind of parallel reality that's simple and I think kind of ugly. They also find stories in which human nature is selfish and self-centered, um, which might be true of a lot of Hollywood executives. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the story. I wrote a book about disaster um, in 2009. And what really happens in disasters is that most people are brave, altruistic, um, creative. They rescue and take care of each other. They rise to the occasion. Those of you who are in San Francisco for the 89 earthquake might remember that the 1906 earthquake is full of stories like that. I'm hearing stories coming out of Turkey where they've just had an earthquake like that. I heard so many from Hurricane Katrina, but Katrina in particular in our time was when the mainstream media uh, told the story Hollywood tells about raping, marauding, looting barbarians who need to be subjugated by law and order, which returns us to the lone hero narrative. They like stories in which ordinary people are sheep and wolves and need some strong man with a you know gun or muscles to control them. So that's one of the places we need to change a story. Thelma is actually with an amazing organization called the Solutions Project, mm. and they actually put out a template for climate storytelling in film and television to suggest how to weave climate into what you tell. And I think that not only do you, you need to literally talk about the climate crisis when you do something like that, but you also need to talk about how does change happen it doesn't happen with guns and muscles and car chases and things going bang and boom so much. And, uh, you know, and I feel like, because I got asked this question last week, we not only need to talk about climate change per se, we need to figure out how to be the people who can address the crisis. What kind of values do we need? What kind of knowledge do we need? So I also feel the media we need the stories we need will give us a different sense of who we are. And that goes back to what I talked about in the beginning. Do we live in an age of, you know, abundance and we need to have austerity for the climate crisis? If we recognize, and I, you see this in stories of disaster, who are we? What do we really want? What you see in disaster over and over is people 
luminous with joy, even though their city just fell apart, a lot of people died, things are in ruins, there's no power, because they found community, they found connection, they found meaning and purpose, they found a kind of immediacy. And I think that's what we want most of all. We want these deep connections, we want purposefulness, we want meaningful work and meaningful lives. And uh, that's not what Hollywood tells us about who we are. That's not what advertising tells us who we are. And so we need to tell the story of the climate and what we can do about it. But we also need to tell the story of who we are in radical ways that I think are very present in a lot of old stories, traditional stories, indigenous stories, fairy tales sometimes, um, but aren't so present um, in sitcoms and, uh, you know, a lot of Hollywood junk. Marvel movies. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe I got through this without any bad words. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Manuel. Hi, Manuel. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Um, first of all, I... Want to acknowledge that uh, I like what the win, as you said, a bottle of stories. Uh, I work with a lot of, with language and mm. conversations, and the power of language and the power of the type of conversations. I think we need conversations for designing the future. So I, I think you said that very well today. Thank you. And, and however, I also think that we need the time to have those conversations, and so. Mm. And, and we seem to be so busy, uh, at least in this country, uh, busy, busy to make a living, to pay the rent, especially in the Bay Area, where, you know, we're all busy, you know, you gotta, the rent keeps going up. So I wonder also if not only having the right futuristic type of possibility conversation is part of what we need to do, as you said, to change the story, but also having the time uh, to do it, so I was wondering about universal basic income, for example. I mean, you mentioned the Ministry for the Future, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, and there was a lot of issues there in that book about economy and money. And so I just wondering about universal basic income would give us the time to have a cup of coffee and have great conversation about designing the future. So yeah. I just wanted your opinion. Yeah, that. no, I think you're absolutely right about time. Universal basic income. I've, which I feel I haven't studied enough to take a position on, but I feel that insecurity really drives us in the United States in a world where, as the homeless people, you know, mere blocks from this building demonstrate, it's possible to be in this society without even a roof over your head or knowing where your next meal will come from or access to health care um, or a shower. In a world where that can happen to you, how can you ever have enough? And I think that one of the things that, people in um, social welfare states like Scandinavia have as a sense, since you can never fall terror mm -hmm. all the way down, you don't have to, you, there is such thing as enough. And that's actually mm -hmm. what a lot of those studies about happiness in Scandinavia about. Scandinavians, come on, it's dark, cold and dark there a lot of the time. They're, they're you know, they're <laughs> Lutherans. They drink a lot. They're not happy in, you know, some senses. But they have a lot of security and confidence in their lives and know that their societies are basically decent that way. So, yeah. But I think the time thing, I remember... Um, 
you know, I'm old enough also to remember people having a lot more leisure. The 40-hour work week, thank you unions, was actually a 40-hour work week. A lot of families could live off, or, you know, couples could live off one income. Um, you know, I lived in San Francisco when a lot of idealistic kids, whether they wanted to write poetry or be activists or whatever, were able to live off a part-time job and devote the rest of their life to something that didn't pay. And yeah, we've lost time. And this yeah. is part of where the conversation about abundance and scarcity could change radically. So I think you brought up a beautiful point. We are poor in time in so many ways. We feel harried. We feel rushed. We feel like we don't have enough time for pleasure, for joy, for well-being, for friendship, for family, for community. And so that's one of the things, you know, if we don't consume so much, we don't need to produce so much. If we don't need to produce so much, we don't need to work so much. And suddenly time reappears. So that's another way I feel like the story could be upended. So I have Thank a little you. story. Uh, May I offer yeah. it? Yeah. Just, just going to date myself quickly. Uh, you mentioned 58. I was here in 68. Uh, hate Ashbury. Ah. Uh, Spent eight months there in Haight-Ashbury. A lot of free time, a lot of experimentation. <laughs> so thank you so much. <laughs> so my little, um, my little story was about the first days of COVID. And I was on my exercise bike and pedaling away when my knee went out. And I'm used to being a horse galloping through life. And all of a sudden, I had this sense that it was like, I had a turtle on my knee, and that turtle was saying, slow down and listen. So that's my offering from this time is how can I or any of us have that taking time to listen to ourselves, listen to each other, listen to nature and the wisdom of nature. So... That's my little story for this evening is slow down and listen. I mean, but and for so many people, they'd like to, but time is money. And there's immigrant parents here working three, do three jobs to keep a roof over their kid's head. And it's not because they love work so much. It's because they love their kids so much. And we really have with, you know, terrible minimum wages and, you know, the... Uh, the cost of living, including housing in the Bay Area, health care, uh, college, etc. A world that's, you know, a country that's uh, so much harder and so much less equal than it was 30, well, really before Ronald Reagan. That's the beginning of the great regression from the relative economic equality and ease of an earlier era. And somebody just talked about being in the Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s. What the 60s the so-called 60s was about, um, by which people usually mean what white kids did in the late 60s, is was about people being able to drop out and live off the fat of the land, because there's a lot of fat of, on the land, on the land, and there was a lot of room to um, take chances, do things differently, and et cetera, that I don't think young people feel like they could do now. Mm. I know two people who are wanted fugitives, um, with FBI posters about them who then, like, came back into the system and actually became professors with tenure and did very did very well. And 
I don't think that works that way these days. So we really change the economy to force to take away people's time, take away their quality of life. And we mostly the Republican Party, but I and Bill Clinton and welfare reform, etc. went along with it. And one of the things we could do and should do, whether or not it's universal basic income, is just remember, we don't even need to talk about socialism or Scandinavia, just the world in which the UC system was mm. tuition free, as it was for my father, um, in which, um, you know, so the social safety net was so much stronger, in which living wages were so much better for working people. And, uh, We've had that world in this country, um, and I think it peaked in the 60s and 70s. We could have it again, but we'd have to vote for some pretty radically different economic policies. So we've reached the point in our program where we only have time for one more question. Sorry, uh, sorry about all that. I'll try about to that. make it a good one, guys. Yeah. Um, I actually think that's a perfect segue to the question that I was going to ask. You were talking earlier about um, – I don't want to block people um, – you were talking earlier about uh, stories shifting, right? Yeah. Like uh, gender, race, sexuality, all, like all these like big topics, right? Mm -hmm. And another conversation that's been happening recently is around wealth, right? And um, you have these big events like Davos and there's a huge climate focus and these A-list billionaire people go and they talk about how they're – um, saving the world and kind of picking back on, on your question earlier, it's sort of like the lone hero, right? But instead of muscles, they have money. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective on that because for a long time it was, it was, they were kind of thought of as saviors because they have all this access, right? In a way, right? And so I'm, but as someone who's been involved in this, I'm just kind of curious to get your opinion on that. One of the things I love, I, and we keep talking about Ministry for the Future, it's a great book. I'd recommend to anybody who likes chunky novels of the near future. Uh, one of the great things about it is they decide billionaires are a threat to the climate and eliminate them. I think that's actually very smart. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the shocking statistics, people often suggest that we're all equally responsible for climate change. Almost nobody in Bangladesh is. Almost everybody in Beverly Hills is. And, um, you know, the, bottom, the, the poorest 50% of humanity produces about the same amount of uh, carbon emissions as the richest 1% of humanity. So there's people having 50, 50 times the impact of other people at a minimum. You know, you look at private jets versus, you know, farmers in Bangladesh, and you're talking about a much larger scale than that. So I think that nobody needs to be that rich. And one of the things we all in the Bay Area see all the time is people get rich doing things that are pretty sketchy. Uh, they're not necessarily improving humanity. I'm looking at you, Airbnb and Lyft and Facebook and Twitter, and it's, okay, Twitter didn't make anybody rich. It, it's making the richest man in the world a lot poorer. So maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe it has some, some value after all. And, uh, you know, they have, not, they have made the Bay Area a dystopia, not a utopia. You see cultural institutions die. You see desperation. You see a housing crisis. You see um, public transit falling apart, et cetera. And they've contributed to all that. They also tend to think that solutions have to be like them, that they need to be some big, heroic, technological, super-duper wonder thing. Bill Gates certainly thinks that way, even if he's only the third richest person in the world. And, uh, and so they tend to be, they tend to use their power to mount obstacles 
to what the real solutions to climate change are, which are modest and dispersed. You know, we don't need some, you know, carbon sequestration and geoengineering and things like that are kind of excuses for continuing to burn fossil fuel. We have the solutions. It's renewable energy. It's electrifying everything. We know how to do it. But I think that world looks too alien to them. You you literally decentralize power if you no longer have these corporations profiting hugely off power that's centralized where fossil fuel is produced and controlled. You know, wind and sun are basically everywhere. And so their failure of imagination drives their decisions and their money makes their decisions influential, which is why billionaires are a climate problem and some progressive taxation would be really great. I'm a big Elizabeth Warren fan and the fact that she wanted to um, tax the hell out of a lot of the big tech corporations as well, who are all tax cheats as well. Well, in in this room, there's a lot of Rebecca Solnit uh, fans. So thank you so much for thank being, you. being with you. So you've, happy to end on an anti-billionaire note. <laughs> you've, uh, you've really given us lots of food for thought. If any of you in this room are billionaires, it's not too late to give it all away. <laughs> I, I recommend the climate movement. Uh, <laughs> thank you to all of you for joining us today. Thank you for the online audience for also being there. If you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club and encourage our more programs, uh, visit commonwealthclub.org slash events to do that. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.